Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about consent. With all of the Me Too hashtag stuff swirling around right now, I think this is the best way to start season four is by talking about how consent has become part of the national conversation, both as a consequence of the election of Donald Trump and also as a result of women talking about sexual harassment and assault in Hollywood. I guess I want to start with a question that might not be popular, but I think is really important. And that is, do you think that consent is real, Laura? Is that a thing? Can we come to, I don't know, an agreement about what consent is? Is it real? Well, I think as it exists now and the way that it's framed, it doesn't carry a lot of weight. So if it is real, it's weak. I feel like consent is kind of a bar that people set for sexual encounters. And it's kind of like the main frame for the conversation around sex. And I don't think it's a good bar. Like, I think it's a very low bar. Like, yeah. consent is like agreement neutral. No, 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 yes is consent, technically. So nine no's and one yes is technically consent. That's a really low bar. Like that shouldn't be the conversation that we're having, <laughs> right? I'm, so does consent exist? Yes. Should it be the, uh, the linchpin of the conversation we're having about sex? Absolutely not. Well, I totally agree. I, you know, I went on a total freak out on the interwebs like last week about how consent is an illusion and about how focusing on consent really drives the conversation away from property, which is re really where I think it should be, because it seems to me that it's impossible to give consent if you're not a person, if you don't have citizenship rights, if you don't own property because you are property. And insofar as the consent conversation has been almost exclusively focused in, in popular culture and in mainstream media around white cis heterosex, it just strikes me that um, without women having access to property, it's impossible for them to assert full personhood in a neoliberal state. It's not that people shouldn't be talking about what they want. I'm, I'm interested in them talking about their desires and how to achieve them collaboratively. I, I want that to be part of the way that we have you know, discourse about sexuality, but a bunch of other desires. But it just strikes me that pinning consent as the lowest common denominator for people to, to enter that conversation is super strange, especially without like any comprehensive sex education in the majority of America. Like how can you even start thinking about consent without like n knowing y the, the names of your body parts? I mean, you know, like there's no sex education in America. So I don't know. I think consent is a really strange place to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. And the conversation about sex is infrequently about pleasure. Oh, I yeah. I mean, it's totally becoming more common to talk about pleasure and women's pleasure in sex. But 
it's really not a huge part of the conversations. Uh, uh, men's pleasure really is as far as that conversation goes. A hundred ways to please your man. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there... I would just settle for ten ways to please yourself. <laughs> you know? Right. As an intervention to yeah. how we think about um, sex and sexual fulfillment. But yeah, yeah, I think it's the centering of heterosexual male desire at the expense of female pleasure in, in terms of like cis-heterosex. And I also think that it is um, about women absorbing pain and deferral and regret as inevitable parts of sexual encounters with men, um, which is totally a problem, right? But I don't think that that's always an issue of consent. I say all the time, like, regret is not rape. If you can't talk to people and they can't learn how to articulate their desires and they can't take responsibility for experimentation or for what they mm-hmm. want, the range of possibilities for them to describe sexual encounters becomes super narrow. And you see this on college campuses in front of judicial boards where sexual assault victims talk about their experiences. They're almost always totally vacated of sexual desire or pleasure at all. Mm-hmm. And that tells me that the victims don't feel like people, right? Which seems like a a much more rudimentary but super important way of thinking about the relationship among people and then also between people who are property and people who are property-less. I've had experiences where if someone were to ask me, do I want to continue? Like if they gave me two options. More or no. Option A (laughs) is let's continue and option B is like, let's stop. If someone had given me those options and a few experiences that I've been in, I might have picked option B. But, you know, like, there's this... I I don't want to call it inertia, but (laughs) I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing to, like, pause a situation that's happening or, like, make a scene or make a deal. And I think a lot of women feel this way. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that those situations were rape. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And even, like, my decision, I mean, I made kind of an internal decision to not say no, right? So I could have been presented options, you know, and I might have taken a different path if I were presented those options. But I wasn't presented those options, and I didn't say no. And so that's a situation that occurred, and I wouldn't classify it as rape. But I do find it problematic. And I, I do have a problem. I hear a lot on, like, TV sitcoms that I watch where there's this, like, conversation about, like, being sexy. And it's not sexy to ask. Like, just kiss me. Like, you don't ask. It's not sex- sexy to ask. And I just cringe when I hear that because <laughs> I think a lot of people are receiving that kind of message that it's not, like, masculine yeah. to just to ask or to check in. There's a situation where if you're going to be like the perfect guy, you're going to sweep someone off their feet, they're going to it's going to be like a smooth <laughs> yeah. thing where consent is implied, but actually the real thing is that it requires a lot of communication. That's part of my problem with consent being a low bar is that it doesn't necessarily require communication. The absence of a no can be consent. <laughs> I mean, I don't like consent as a starting point because I feel like it it fails to dislodge. It makes no attempt to dislodge 
um, the narrative where men are the pursuers or where men have the, res the responsibility or the right to determine how the communication about sexual encounters is positioned, right? I don't like that because it continues to presume that men have to offer you know, up the cues verbally and men have to do all of the communicative work and that doesn't dislodge heterosexism or heteropatriarchy or um, the things that people find unsavory or rapey about heterosexual sex. And so for me, it makes much more sense to think about sexual scripts as things that we teach people when they're young about how any kind of encounter with any kind of other body, regardless of the sex or gender, how that can be um, a healthy, positive, supportive encounter. And to make men ask more <laughs> doesn't do women a justice if we're thinking about cis, you know, heterosex um, at all, I don't think. I also don't like the idea, I, I really hate the term predators. I've been thinking about this a lot. And prob probably because I do race work, like it gets thrown around about black and brown men all the time, despite the fact that like white dudes are super rapey too, and more so in fact. And so I don't like that term at all. I think there are very few people who actually qualify as predators. I don't like it as a casual term. It's not a term of art, really. I think it makes the debate really messy and unhelpful. And I think that it allows it allows the notion of consent to be sort of a like a it, it's fundamentally a red herring and i'm thinking about this a lot with the me too movement because i feel like women lobbing claims about past assault or past abuse or whatever while i'm sympathetic to the narratives of the victims and i think that's it's super important to think about narratives of victimage as, as a an important part of helping us dec decode sexual culture I really, really think that the Me Too movement also functions as a form of kind of post-truthism where women can just lodge complaints and because the consent area is so gray, they can make accusations without any kind of evidentiary burden, basically. And I think that that's super problematic because it's the same thing that post-truth is doing on the other side by dismissing their accounts. And so I think it's the opposite side of the same coin where on the one hand, with post-truth, women's claims about sexual assault are completely dismissed and they're not, they're not trusted as interlocutors. And on the other side, the way that the women try and take that back is to throw unsubstantiated claims, non-evidentiary or evidence claims at people with no mediation whatsoever. I think it undermines any kind of pedagogical exercise or reparative exercise to teach people about sexual scripts and I think it's I think that the me too thing is a is a function of, of post-truthism I don't think it gets us any closer to a more consensual sexual culture I don't think it breaks down any of the structural barriers to equality whatsoever I think it's just a way of women to occupy a post-truth space without having to do the hard emotional reckoning of their polluted attachments to romance. It's not that I don't like the exposure of like men in positions of power that wield that power to assault women. That needs to be exposed, right? But the way to do that is not to just toss around 
accusations, I don't think. I think fundamentally it is undermining any kind of solvency that feminism might potentially have to transform sexual culture. I think this is not a strategy that is going to end up rhetorically or politically advancing a more egalitarian sexual culture at all. I think there's no chance of that. What I mean, do you think? I think we could do better to understand people's stories and to like have women who have bad sexual experiences with men or who are assaulted and raped, yeah. which happens all of the time. I mean, there should be a greater sense of care and a greater structure for care for those women. And it doesn't exist right now. And so I appreciate the effort, obviously, to like try and create sure. that space and to like encourage people to speak up and I do think that men are gross and aggressive in sexual ways that aren't necessarily rapey and they should stop that (laughs) and and so (laughs) I do want that movement to kind of put an end to unnecessarily sexual behavior. <laughs> yeah, I mean catcalling is terrible and grabbing women at work is terrible. All those things are all terrible, deplorable, stupid behaviors. But they're a result of systemic inequality. I mean, they're they're not fundamentally about sex per se. Like all the harassment stuff is about prop property. It's about the unequal distribution of property that makes some people ideal citizens and some people non-humans. And that is how the culture breaks, right? And I also think there's a huge difference between rape and sexual assault on the one side and people being assholes, right? Like cat calling from cars. Those are not equivalent things, right? They're both terrible, but they're terrible in totally different scopes and scales. Totally different. And I think we lose some descriptive edge by just shoving them all together as an aggregative thing. Because then what it does is then it says, all men are the enemy, which makes feminism completely useless in describing any real harm, right? I object to that about this the Me Too moment. What it's doing is showing us how the tools of second wave feminism to describe sex are no longer useful at all in making the important distinctions that could help us reframe the conversation about sex in a culture that does not privilege women or people of color or disabled people or mm-hmm. what you know undocumented people right like they're all of these vulnerable people and they are abused at a much higher level and they're abused that way not because of sex but because of property because of power and i just think that the Me Too movement exposes how not descriptive second wave feminist terms are about sex and we have got to invent new terms that do much better at thinking about nuance and I think we need to ask different questions. The question is not are all men the same in terms of their ability to or their propensity to abuse and the answer to that is no they're not. There are huge differences based on race and gender and class and geography and a whole host of other markers. You can't just lump all of the men together that way. I think that that is not a useful way of thinking about power at all. I think it's to the detriment of any kind of feminist movement organizing, like real grassroots political stuff, 
to just hashtag it all together and aggregate it as it's all the same sort of thing that makes it much easier to dismiss. Yeah. You know, so I, I have a lot of real complaint, I think, about Me Too in its erasure of children and men as victims of sexual assault and violence. I have a problem that it erases LGBTQ experience in this rubric because the culture is so white supremacist and it is so focused on white women as always and already victims of sexual assault as it portrays them in every single crime show on TV in every horror movie ever the white woman is the ideal victim and so here if you have tried out all these women in Hollywood or whatever these white women victims what are you doing but replicating this cultural zeitgeist that feeds on that pleasure of devouring the white women as is the ideal victim this Me Too movement has a place, and I struggle to criticize it in the right way because I definitely don't want to give people who are actual abusers and actual rapists a pass. Totally. Do not want to give I hear them a that. pass whatsoever. But there are a lot of hairy situations where, like in the cases that I was in, you know, where if I had been asked, do I want this to continue, I might have said no. But that's not assault. That's a hairy situation. And there are other situations even where behavior is gross or men are taking advantage of situations that might not be like 100% clear, but where the low bar of consent has been passed. Yeah. Um, and that's a consent problem. And that's a cultural problem because that conversation has given men the ability to like check off this box they said yes they came home with me they texted me late at night they're they drank with me you know they're like these checks that then like imply consent that yeah. aren't necessarily the communication doesn't happen but there's like this implication and people just make assumptions and i think a lot of that has been tied into these accusations in the me too conversation I struggle to blame individual men when <laughs> they didn't have good resources for I totally talking about agree. sex. I totally agree. I think it's completely reckless and punitive to think about patriarchy as a monolithic thing where all of the men have access to power to do harm to women. That is simply not the case. It's not the case. The data shows that it's not the case. And and I think that you're completely right in in thinking about how Me Too has a punitive edge, it's not that Harvey Weinstein is not the same as the guy that you went home from the frat party with. I mean, they're not, they do not have the same kind of indexes of power whatsoever. The way that they process that power or powerlessness is not the same. And to punish either men or women for making decisions in the absence of information strikes me as complete lunacy. So I would much rather think about pleasure and desire as starting points for a conversation about healthy sex and healthy relationships of all varieties then start with consent as the place where it has to happen because I think consent necessitates a punitive perspective 
about sex. And I think that that is damaging. And I think I also think it's a source of massive shame for men and for women to talk about consent or the absence of consent as the place where the interrogation about sexuality should be. I think it's grotesque. I just fundamentally think it's totally grotesque. I understand why it's happening. I, I really do. But I think it's more of a symptom of women's attachment to you know, this this really negative, destructive idea about heterosex that's really that's really the problem. You know, if women were not so attached, and men too, obviously, but if women were not so attached to the, I want a guy who's bigger than me that makes me feel small, and, you know, I, you know, projecting all of this agency onto the man or, as the arbiter of sex. Right. And also, I'm not saying that they're doing it intentionally, obviously, but they're attached to it as a sexual form, as a form of their desire. Their desire takes the shape of this kind of, you know, Beauty and the Beast thing. And the entire culture reinforces that. Until you take that away, I don't see how consent is possible at all. If you are fantasizing about the guy throwing you around, if you are fantasizing about sexuality as a thing where men are the repositories of agency, sexual consent is an impossibility. You've already given away what kind of agency that you might assert as an equal and instead put it into this fantasy that necessitates your lack of equality. It's gross. I'm saying that the, the rigidity of the gender roles as a function of property forecloses the possibility of positive consent. If you're cis-hetero and you're fucking dudes, you are lucky if they are not being assaulty and rapey at you, but they're doing it based on their own self-control and interest. They don't have to do that. The culture supports them doing it. We support all kinds of mediation of unchecked male sexual desire, all kinds of them, whether it's the extension of the gun is the phallus and property, or whether it's pop culture. We, as a culture, buy into the the depositing of all of this sexual agency into the penis. So until that gets taken away, the idea of consent strikes me as just total just preposterous. I mean, you spoke earlier, we talked a little bit about alternatives to consent, like yeah. you should ask, give people options. You spoke a little earlier about how it's kind of unfair to like make men yeah. ask that. Yep. But because the culture is the way it is now, and it's not fair, and it's not fair for women in a lot of ways, and it's not fair for men, it's not fair for anyone, but because it is the way that it is, we do have to ask people that. Okay, but listen, literally, better. that is literally it's the most fair. conservative strategy you could possibly take to addressing sexual assault. So I'm on the other side saying I want a much more radical. Consent. I obviously want something radical, but yeah. I want like a solution right now for people who are about to have sex tonight. But it doesn't work that way because <laughs> if we if we collapse down and say the problem is fundamental communication between people, right? We are taking out like the guy who grabs you in the bushes and steals you away. To, I'm like, uh, we are Brock not Turner. talking about that. We're not talking about Brock no. Turner's. Fuck them. They're trash. Okay, yeah, they cannot. That's definitely. That's right. definitely. We're not, not definitely consent. Right. Even. Not consent. If we're talking about the swishy area where there is some consent and there's some some sexual desire and interest and there's some, right where the boxes have been checked off that imply consent, all that gray area, which is a lot of the sex, especially in the college-age population, right, then there is no way that yelling about consent is going to make consent happen. You have got to start with healthy sexual scripts. You have to, right? You have to give them something else. And it, and it has to be a, about the things that you were 
illuminating, right? About, you know, what do you want and how do you want it? And what is your desire and what are your limits? And, you know, do you want this yes or no? All of that stuff is a, is a product of a much larger conversation about sexual desire that has to start much sooner than when you're drunk and your, your clothes are already half off. It's too late then to talk about consent. Mm-hmm. Because all kinds of non-consenting things have already happened. The situation's already weird. It's too, it's too late is what I'm saying. And I mean, we know that if you look at the statistics about sexual assault, if you wait to talk to your kid about sex and, and bad touching and assault, by the age of eight, it's too late. They are, more, they are most likely to be groomed or assaulted repeatedly, especially in the home, before the age of eight. And we have all of these people running around America with zero sex education at 15 and 25 and 40. All of this non-consenty stuff has already happened. It just seems to me that to settle for consent is foreclosing the possibility of a much more uh, radical actual solution right, which is about thinking through the relationship between sex and property. And if we just collapse into the hashtag internet mm-hmm. activism around it, then there is no restructuring of the desire. There's no redistribution of the wealth. There is no, there's no political part of it. It's just punitive. And I don't see that being any sort of strategy, really, in curbing what is the gross kind of sexual culture that inequality produces, especially among you know, among white people. It's not enough. Yeah, the lack of sex education is appalling. And the lack of vocabulary that people have about sex um, and their inability to talk about sex is really devastating. It's so repressed. And that's part of the reason I think a lot of these interactions become uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree. It's because no one has been given information about themselves or their bodies or about how to have sex with other people, and what that means. And a lot of the conversation is is about getting laid and having, like, a really casual... <laughs> Tinder like hookup. Yeah. There are, like, two sides to the sexual point where you're, like, either hooking up with someone and it doesn't mean anything, or you're trying to get married. Yeah. And there's not a lot of, like, middle ground where, like, there's friendship and, like, complex relationships and... You're either dating or you're not. And I don't think there's a lot of nuance to the conversation about sex, which is a big problem. I mean, I said the other day, I think compulsory heterosexuality and marriage totally contribute to rape culture. Totally, 100%. Because it creates the space to deposit all of that agency in heterosexual white men. Or men who have the power to present as heterosexual or to just take whatever they want, regardless of the form that the sex takes. That is just simply not not reasonable. It's just totally not reasonable. I also think that in thinking about the relationship between assault or gross sex and rape culture... I mean, I just think that the consent conversation takes us so far away from the entire legal structure, which is so anti-victim advocacy. And I also think that it occludes the fact that people can be both victim and perpetrator over the course of their lifetime. And it occludes bidirectional sexual violence that happens in dyads, right, where sexual violence goes back and forth, where people are both victim and perpetrator simultaneously in relationships. I think it is like the least descriptive tool to help us understand the complexity of 
having sex in a neoliberal capitalist culture that was founded by Puritans, for goodness sake. How can you not talk about this entire history of sexual repression and witch hunting and then the culture that builds the largest empire of porn? I mean, both of them are happening at the same time in the same place where you've got all of this purity movement happening and then all of this porning. And it's happening in the White House and it's happening on, you know, all throughout Hollywood and it's happening in the workplace and it's happening in the home. And so it's very hard for me to see how the consent conversation does anything useful to change what is a massive shitstorm of porn and purity. I cannot see how it provides us any utility whatsoever, really, except potentially to make women more aware of what kinds of verbal cues you know they need to make to indicate that they're not consenting but even then i don't think that that is where the fulcrum of the problem lies and i don't think that women are necessarily going to take this hashtag thing and do anything with it in fact it the hashtag me too situation seems to be like a kind of wound fetish where women adopt this mantle of victimhood and that's the position that they want to take to lodge their political complaint and that is not a position where political complaints are heard so in what sense does becoming the victim and totally and and painting everybody as a victim how does that create political space for any kind of actual political momentum it does not do that it's it doesn't do it it's just fetishizing victimhood, and it feeds into the cycle of seeing women as victims mm-hmm. who then accept the mantle of victimhood. It is an undermining of political agency fundamentally in the guise of this progressive thing. And if you look at something like the Golden Globes or whatever, right, or you're watching women wear clothes, they're dressing their bodies, right? Their bodies in Hollywood as objects, they're dressing them as sex objects to protest their sexual treatment. How is how am I the only one who sees the irony of this? Here you are in your super sexy strapless dress with your heaving breasts falling out that you get paid to show on the screen and then you are going to garb it in a way that accentuates your ob- the objectification of you and you're going to use that to make a statement about sexual assault. You got to be shitting me. That is absurd. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. You know what I'm saying? On one hand, I think with the conversation about abortion and with the conversation about sexual assault, it is important for women to feel comfortable speaking openly. Like, I think that's a good, positive thing that's coming from this kind of movement. Being able to share your war stories honestly. But the only people who are allowed to speak are the white women. I mean, it's not like there's like all of this egalitarian sharing across all different kinds of victims. Like I said, there are no children. There are no black folks, really. There aren't very many men. There aren't a bunch of queers. Like, this is entirely a space of victimhood dominated by white women. So let's think about, like, the election of Trump. You've got 53% of white women who feel like they've been victimized by the black president man. That they're the same. It's the same language. That white lady victimhood is the same language of conservatism. It, it It's not transformative. It is totally a cul-de-sac as a political tool. It's a dead end, I think. I guess I'm unwilling to, to like totally abandon something that's given people who felt disempowered some kind of power, even if they are white women. 
I don't want to take away any opportunity for someone to actually call out real no i disagree situations of assault but i disagree when white but women, i also don't want the the gray area to become a whipping post where we're ruining people's lives and careers because of something that was a miscommunication i mean here's the thing what happens when it's just white women saying me too is that we as a culture have decided that we already know that everybody else is a victim of it and that's okay but once it happens to white women then it becomes a problem which just reinscribes the racial dynamics of property and power that i find so revolting so i i mean i you can i i understand where you're coming from i really do i just can't go there with you i just can't because i feel like when the conversation begins and ends with consent, it forecloses all of these other avenues that are wildly more productive, practically and theoretically. And people are just simply not willing to do the work because they don't want to give up the fantasy of heterosexual coupling and marriage. And while we still have a nation that incentivizes heterosexual marriage and property rights for men, you are not going to be able to undo male sexual violence with consent talk. It's a God trick. It, it's a false sense of progress, I think. And I think it's more damaging than it is liberatory. It has, I think it has zero liberatory potential, except in minimal kinds of solidarity. And even then that gets transformed into $10,000 ball gowns which is a fundamental assertion of class, privilege, and power that functions very differently for white women than it does for women of color. So you're not going to hear women who work in reproductive justice movements talking about, you know, me too as the way to help secure healthy families to have a wide range of safe choices to raise children in or to be safe from violence they're not, me too is is so narrow and you're just not going to see it um, and i just think it forecloses all of the other voices right. that have more interesting things to say i think it re <laughs> i think it reproduces violence structural violence i think it's a, t a technology of post-truth i think it is what happens when feminism becomes post-truth i think it has the potential to completely undermine any kind of political solidarity that feminism might have as an organizing tool. So let's talk about reproductive justice then, because I think that is a better way. There are certain ways we can redirect our energy that I think would be a better direction. Would do better. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not carceral. I, I'm not trying to put a bunch of people in jail. I think that the education has to start much sooner. The interventions in the culture have to start much sooner, and it has to be a much more sustained thing. That's the other thing. I think the Me Too thing is like, okay, let's put these we should put everybody in jail and these people in jail. Some of these people, Brock Turner's trash. He's total trash, right? In the short term, those people need to be taken out of society, but the problem is, is that what are we, what do we fundamentally want? You look at the internet, and what happens, then you see the people that are excited to send folks to jail so they can be raped uh, people understand that prison itself is a replication of rape culture that's what prison is it is a factory of rape culture that is a product of capital and that supports and reinforces white supremacy and so we're going to send people into the rape place to teach them about how not to be rapey that's also crazy it's absurd it's grotesque it's carnival I don't know, celebrating 
the carceral as a response to sexual assault, I also find completely revolting. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. But yes, I think reproductive justice is a much is a is a useful place to think about um, property and propertylessness. It's not a coincidence that you have all of this purity culture and porn culture happening at the same time and a denial of reproductive access to reproductive justice or reproductive technologies. Those all line up in the same vein of conservatism, and that's controlling female bodies so that they cannot own property. And by female, I mean white people, white men, controlling all of the bodies that are non-normative, right, but especially the ones that reproduce whiteness either as its opposite or as itself. So, I mean, those things all go together. I'm also thinking about family support and financial support systems, like publicly supported daycare. A lot of women are working two jobs to support kids and pairing up with men that aren't their ideal choice for financial security. If we had a federal jobs (laughs) guarantee, that would decrease sexual assault. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like the frame on consent really narrows the way that we engage with structures that undermine the possibility of an egalitarian culture. If people have, you know, a mandated living wage and a federal jobs guarantee, then they make different decisions that are more consensual and more egalitarian because they have a higher index of social power. So if you want to decrease violence in communities of any kind, then you have to raise the standard of living for the people who are not at the 1%. You ha- that's, there's no other way to do the thing. And so we can spin around about these little bitty pieces of the conversation and circle jerk about them like they're super important. But at the end of the day, if people don't have fucking jobs, they are not going to be able to, to give consent. Period. 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 Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.